So last week, one of the things that we focused on was the person and work of Christ. As every week, we should focus on the person and work of Christ because you know, as we look at uh, what it means to be a Christian, what our foundational beliefs must be, it must be a correct understanding of who Christ is and what He has done. And so this week, we're going to see both of those things come together in His Lordship. Who He is and what He has done. If you get either one of those wrong, you cannot understand His Lordship. And so I would say this is probably one of the most neglected doctrines in the church. Now we say this, Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It kind of rolls off of our tongues very easily. But do we really understand what it means that He is Lord? And many, you will hear, try to make a distinction. Well, is he both Lord and Savior? People will say, well, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, but he is not Lord of my life or something like that. It is impossible. And he cannot save you if he is not Lord. You cannot believe in him, yet not submit to his Lordship. It's impossible. He is reigning over all things. He has authority over all things. And so for us, we need to ask the questions when we think about the resurrected Christ. Is he just a man? Is he just a teacher? Or is he even just a, a bodily resurrected human? It's still not enough. He is the risen Christ. He is the reigning Lord. God is his identity. From before time, the Alpha and Omega. God, holy God, the fullness of God. Jesus is his name when he took on flesh. He took on a human name. Christ is his title. He is the Messiah, the anointed of God. This is who he came to be. And Lord is his position. It is his status now and forevermore. Glory and honor and praise and power and might and kingdom and dominion is his forever. And the resurrection is beautiful. But we can't stop at the resurrection. Because the resurrection confirms and initiates his lordship. And so it's interesting, as I was studying this week and trying to decide where I want to land on this passage, something struck me. That in John's gospel, he uses the term Lord to refer to Christ sparingly in chapters 1 through 19. Chapter 20, it's, he's going to say it six times, referring to him as Lord. Chapter 21, seven times. There is something about the resurrection, the, the resurrected Christ that confirms his lordship and exemplifies it. And so we're going to look at that this morning. I'm going to look at him as Lord. Because as Jesus emphasizes here, he doesn't spend a lot of time on his resurrection, but he focuses on his ascension. To, to Jesus, the focus is that he goes back to be with the Father. That he is seated at the right hand of the Father in the seat of power in glorified humanity. So this is a very full picture of the doctrine of lordship in this passage. So I want to spend some time here this morning. Because what he has done declares us the fullness of who he is. If we don't understand what he's done, we don't understand who he is. And yes, he is God and man together, but he is also Lord. And there's many implications for that. So I want to jump right into our passage this morning. So if you open up to John chapter 20. Uh, one more thing I want to do before we get into our our text. And as we're reading through and as we're learning this morning, make sure you're keeping in mind that we want to resist the temptation to speculate in the text. As I was reading this week and preparing and reading commentaries, there are so many speculations as to why this detail's there, why this is said this way, why the other gospels 
seem to say something different, and a lot of people will place their own assumptions on the text. We're going to take the text as it is given to us. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in the other Gospels, because each Gospel, as we said so many times, has their own purpose. And so we're going to focus on John's purpose, the details John has, has, has given us, and where the other Gospels are helpful, we're, we're going to bring them in as, as well. But John has a particular purpose, and so that's going to be our purpose this morning. So if you would join me in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were both going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in its place by itself, in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of the Lord, or excuse me, of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to him, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you, have car- if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a tremendous blessing it is. Those who are in Christ who were regenerated by the Spirit, we have seen the Lord. Our eyes have not beheld Him, yet we believe. But we know Him. Our hearts have beheld Him. Lord, I pray for us this morning. I pray that in our weakness, we would not be distracted with doubt and and speculations, but in faith. We would read your word and let it transform us. Let it convict us. Let it teach us. Let us submit ourselves to the authority of your word that is under the authority of Christ. That we would fully know him and worship him as Lord. Lord, not just in our lives and our own little worlds, but Lord over all things. And that we would patiently anticipate his return as the Lord of glory, to reconcile all things to Himself and rejoice that we have been hidden in Him. 
And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so I want to jump right in now on the first day. And of course, we can't get a few words in without saying something here. Why does John include this? Why does he mention the first day of the week? So many people will ask, okay, why do we worship on Sunday? Why did the the Jewish Sabbath that was on Saturday change to Sunday? So we have to understand what the meaning of each day is. Now, most of us should know the story of creation that God created in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. The seventh day was the end of creation. But what happened on the first day? John says here, as we talked about last week, the significance this day, this particular Sunday that he rose, the first day of the week, was the celebration of the first fruits. Those first fruits, that would, the, the first life that came out in spring. This is the first day of the new creation. When Christ rises, God begins his work of new creation, recreating all things and reconciling all things to himself. So we don't worship the finishing of the, or excuse me, we don't worship on the day of finishing initial creation. We worship on the day of initiating new creation, the beginning of the week, the first day of the week, because everything we do is rooted in the resurrection of Christ, who is the first fruits from the dead. This is why we worship on a Sunday. Now, the Sabbath principle still applies, but its symbolism is much deeper and much more revealed for us. And so the early church picked up on this very quickly. John continues this by telling us that this happened on the first day of the week. And what happened on the first day of the week? Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. Now, John doesn't give us a lot of backstory, and there isn't a whole lot of backstory on Mary Magdalene, but it is important that we bring in Luke here. In, in Luke 7, he tells us that Mary Magdalene, um, or excuse me, in, in Luke, he tells us that seven demons were cast out of Mary Magdalene. That's a serious transformation. Seven demons living within her. This woman who, was, who had a body literally devoted to Satan. Now Matthew tells us that she was there when they rolled the stone in front of the tomb. She goes from a body devoted to Satan to a life devoted to her Lord. I mean, what an amazing picture of this woman along with other faithful women who were there with him at the cross who went right up to the tomb. And on the first day of the week, she's there. And she wasted no time because John includes this detail as well. She came to the tomb early. How early? It was still dark. So you got to remember what happened. It was, they're coming off of the Sabbath. You're not to do any work or anything on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath begins at sundown. And, uh, for 20, and then it uh, ends at sunrise. So it's still dark. She's, she's itching. She gets there as soon as she possibly can. Her devotion shows how early she shows up at the tomb while it is still dark. She beat the sun up. She got there before. And why is she so devoted? John doesn't tell this, but Scripture tells us in many places that those who have been forgiven much are grateful for much. This woman is, her devotion, I think, is exemplified here by John because of how much Jesus meant to her. That he drove out seven demons from her. And so John chooses to focus on her. Now, this is another pattern within John. Because in the other Gospels, they tell us that there were several women. We'll go over that in just a second. 
But John always focuses on these interpersonal relationships with Jesus. He spends time with Nicodemus. He spends time with the woman at the well. John loves Jesus' personal interaction and shows how Jesus cares for everyone, particularly where they are and how he's, he's created them. So Mary Magdalene becomes a focal point in this, this passage, probably because of her devotion and how much she has to be grateful for. And we will get into more of that later. So she goes before dark, and then she sees the stone taken away from the tomb. And so this combination of the cross and the empty tomb completes our symbol of victory. That on the cross, Christ died for sins. That in the empty tomb, he rose again that we might have new life in him. You see these things together, you understand what salvation is, and you understand the work of Christ. His blood on the cross and his risen body in the empty tomb. And this is our symbol of victory because it is his victory over the grave on our behalf. So we don't get a whole lot of details of what goes on there. We'll turn to Luke in just a moment uh, and tell us a little bit more about what, what happened. But her response, she doesn't know what to do with herself, so she runs. John includes a lot of action verbs here. She's running, the disciples are running, there's a lot of moving and, and, and turning. This is written as a very vivid scene so we know what's going on here. So the next thing she does, verse 2, and she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now if you're familiar with John's gospel, John has some humble moments and John has some moments where he brings some attention to himself. And John gives the very humble title of the one whom Jesus loves, referring to himself. He will not name himself by name. But anytime you see that, it's John who has had this intimate relationship with, with Jesus. Talks about leaning on, on his breast and, and the, the intimacy that they have. And that's how he refers to himself. So when Mary Magdalene sees that the tomb is empty, where does she go first? She goes to the two most beloved disciples. Peter, who is the mouthpiece and the spokesperson. And John, who's the beloved. And, her, and here's, listen to what she says. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid them. Now, John doesn't mention the other women, but we here, John's recognizing that there are other women there. She's speaking we on behalf of the other women, but the focus is on Mary Magdalene. But I want you to look at what she says at first. They have taken the Lord. Her first thought is of human agency. They have, have taken him. Did she forget what Jesus promised? Now, here's where Luke is helpful. If you turn to Luke chapter 24, we're going to start in verse 1. Luke gives us similar details, but Luke kind of helps us understand what, what happened when they first reached the tomb. So Luke 24, starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you. Jesus told them, this is not new news to them, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. 
And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed, them and seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So even in her devotion, her response here is a response of unbelief. They took him. Somebody had to do something. I think about this in our Deuteronomy study. We spent a lot of time talking about this on Wednesday in Deuteronomy 7. How God knew that Israel's temptation was always to fear the greater nations, was always to fear the acts of men. And so God had to remind them again and again of who he is and what he promises. And we all went around the the table and looked at each other and thought about how many times we do this. How many times when the promises of God escape us and our first response is, look what they've done to blame human agency, to forget the promises of God. And even when you're reminded of the promises of God, to not act on them, but act on your own fears. And so Mary's devotion, yet her fear, is on display for us in front of us right now. And, you know, as we go forward and as we think about Mary's example, I want us to use her as an example for devotion. Because what you wake up for before dark shows what you're devoted to. We should be that devoted to Christ. But she's not infallible. So her example of looking to human agency and fearing the things that man has done should be an example to us as as well. Do we trust in the promises of God? Or do we look to what we see or, or can't see? Or what we must do before trusting in the Lord? And so this is a great example for us in both regards. And so... Her language here, they have taken the Lord. Now, in my introduction, I said we're going to talk about lordship, so I want to spend just a moment on this word. This word in the Greek, kurios, is used in a lot of different ways. It means sir, it means master, it also means lord, and so the context can be different. So she does recognize him at the very least as her master, as her, her, her teacher, as we're going to see later. But does she fully understand his lordship? Because if she did, would she be so distraught that his body was removed from the tomb? And so it's important for us to know that this, this word is not always so, so cut and dry. But she does recognize that they took the Lord. And this is going to develop as we go. So hold on to that thought. Picking up in verse 3, here's what happens next. So, uh, so Peter went out. Um, So as she tells the disciples this, then Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were both going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. So this is such a guy detail. This is such a guy thing. Guys have, have, all of us at some point, most of us when we're younger, will do this. We'll start going somewhere, and you want to get there quicker, and the other guy seems to be walking faster than you, and everything becomes a competition. One guy takes off running, the other guy has to take off running. Ladies, you don't understand this. Every guy in the room knows what, what I'm talking about. Um, and this, now, this is one of those passages where I've seen so much speculation on. And so I'm going to tell you up front, this is, this is my speculation. Um, but look the, the, the detail that John uses here. But both of them were running together. But the other disciple, this is humble John here, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This is such a guy thing. This, de- this detail did not need to be here. You could have just said, the other disciple reached the tomb first. 
But he had to throw that jab in there that he outran Peter. And so my speculation is every time John tells us, John is an inspired writer, and the Holy Spirit used this to bring his personality out. But my speculation is that every time John tells this story, he has to throw that jab in there that he outran Peter. Peter's been dead for decades now. John's an old man, but yet he still remembers that I beat Peter to the tomb. Every time I read it, I just, I just laugh. I, I, I can't help it. <laughs> um, and so we get the, the differences in personality. We see Mary's inner workings. We get to see John's inner workings. And so in John, he reached the tomb first, and he stooped in to look in, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Um, John gives us some insight into his personality. He's still cautious. He thinks before he acts. He sits outside and he processes. A lot of you understand that. Like, I'm not going in there until I fully assess the situation and I know what's, what's, what's going on. Um, and then in verse 6, then two whole verses later is when Peter shows up. John is just kind of like give, gives the whole details. I went there. I assessed the whole situation. I got a plan in my head. And then Peter shows up. That's how, faster I am that, how much faster I am than, than Peter. Then Simon Peter came, followed him, and went into the tomb. We can see the, the differences between the two. John stops, thinks, and looks. And Peter rushes. He, he's still trying to catch up, but runs right into the tomb, doesn't even think. And um, it's a reminder of how different the Lord ha, has made us. That John is, is, is more thoughtful. Peter's more impetuous. But he loves them both. And he uses them, them both. And scripture is full of these little details so that we're reminded that whether you're a John in the situation or a, a Peter in the situation, that the Lord can use both of you. And um, there's something here that you might not pick up on initially, but three times in this, this whole exchange, um, beginning in, in verse 6, uh, or actually beginning in, in verse 5, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying there, and he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' uh, head, had not, excuse me, not lying with the linen clothes folded up in the place by itself. Linen. Why does he use linen three times? Now, if you remember, last week we talked about the Jewish burial customs where they would put the salves and the uh, spices and the, the ointments on the body and then wrap them in layers and layers of linen. These linen strips were used for dead bodies. But three times here, linen is, is mentioned. So you have to remember also, yesterday was the Sabbath, as we said. On the Sabbath, you would do no work. And so if someone really did remove the body, not only would they be violating the, the, the Sabbath, but they'd have to touch an unclean body. And so that would make themselves unclean. And so you, as an observing Jew, you certainly would not go near the tomb, let alone open it up and, and touch a, a dead body and therefore be defiled. And you certainly would not unwrap all of the linens to move the body, because that's just gross. But, but they are removed. And there's a face cloth that was folded up by itself. So there's intention here. It was carefully placed by itself. And so what do we pull from this? Living people do not need burial linens. Someone who is alive does not need burial cloth, does not need their, their, their face to be covered. The Lord is, is, is risen, and there was care taken in that rising to set these aside and, and to roll up the handkerchief that was on his face and set it to the side. The disciples have witnessed a risen Lord who no longer needs burial 
linens. And so then John, now John is putting these pieces together, and John's mind is, is working, and he tells us in verse 8, Then the other disciples, still referring to himself, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. And I love that here John evidences for us that faith does not need all the details. Faith does not need all the evidence. When you have eyes to see, he didn't need to see the risen Christ in the body. He saw the empty tomb. He saw the linens, and he believed. He made the connection. I love this, this detail. Uh, A.T. Robertson in his commentary says, Peter has um, more sight. So Peter runs in and sees things first, but John has more insight. Peter is a doer, but John is a deep thinker. And he begins to make these connections, and you see this as, as a writer. You know, I've been humbled by reading John and all of the details that, that he uses and how intentional everything is placed where it is. And so now you get John's assessment of the situation, and when he goes in, he fully comprehends what's going on here. And we don't know if he believed before Peter or if they believed at the same time, but he tells us that he believed because he saw everything as it was set. So we continue in verse 9. So then he gives us a little bit more indication of what's going on in, in the belief. They, they had to see because they didn't fully understand the Scriptures. For as yet, they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. What is Scripture? It's an important question to ask. John often, and the Gospel writers and the New Testament writers often refer to Scripture. Scripture is the revealed Word of God. God's inspired word, his word given to his people so that they may know him and know the truth. And so John, in his honesty here, recognizes his own ignorance. We didn't yet understand the scriptures. And we're going to look at a few of those and you'll, you'll see that with eyes to see, it's helpful to make these, these connections, but there is nowhere in the Old Testament where it says Jesus of Nazareth will die on a cross and will rise himself on the third day and there will be an empty tomb and there will be burial linens put to the side. Uh, that's not how, how a prophecy works. And for people who are always looking for literal translations, they're going to drive themselves crazy. But there are many of these great themes throughout the Old Testament. I want to put these up on the screen, screen so we can move through them. We looked at this last week, but it's a good reminder. Psalm 16, 9 and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Why does he rejoice? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The Holy One would not be corrupted. This also we read this morning in, in Psalm 118. Um, and I want to reiterate it again here because the details here are so important. And Jonathan alluded to it a little bit. But Psalm 118, beginning in verse 17. And it says, I shall not die, but I shall live. And recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the righteous one opening the gates. This is the righteous one going first. This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous shall enter through it. The first one through the righteous gate who gives his righteousness to his own. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The one who would not be given over to death recognize that he is saved by God. And who is the one that is righteous, the one that was not given over, by, over to death? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is used again and again throughout the New Testament to show that the Jews 
did not understand that the cornerstone, the most important stone in, in any building process was Christ, and they rejected him, but he became the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, we love that saying, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And in a general sense, it applies to every day. But the day that is referring to here is when the righteous one was not given over to death. When the righteous one in his lordship became the cornerstone. This is the day, that day. That day when, when he was delivered over from the grave, that's the day we rejoice in because that's the day where everything else changes. We've also spent a lot of time in Isaiah 53. I want to go back there and connect all these things because Isaiah 53 seems like a stream of uh, prophecies that are not connected. But there is a pattern here. So look at Isaiah 53. I'm going to pick up in verse 7. We've seen all these details over the past few weeks, but I want to bring them together. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened out his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened out his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for this generation who considered him, that he was cut off from the land of the living. Cut off from the land of the living a.k.a. died, stricken for the transgression of my people, in case you didn't remember that he died, verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked. This one, the lamb, led to the slaughter. He died. His grave was, was with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Yes, he's truly dead. We talked about Jacob, uh, Joseph of Arimathea last week. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. According to God's plan, he died. And put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, what did he do? His, his soul, his propitiation was the offering for grief. But this is not the end. This same suffering servant who was oppressed uh, and who was led to the grave and who died, someone who's truly dead does not have these words ascribed to him, and he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted, counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is not language of a dead person. A dead person cannot see their offspring. A dead person cannot have um, a, a portion with the many. Even in Isaiah, it was always prophesied that he was to die. He poured out his soul to death. But death is not the end of the story. And one more I thought was, was um, really helpful in Hosea, Hosea chapter 6. When you have eyes to see and you begin to read through the Old Testament, the, the promises to God's people... Hosea chapter 6, look at the details of just verse 1 and 2. This is, this is the, the call for repentance for Israel and, and, and Judah. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Look at verse 2. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. In these little bits and pieces, it's hard to connect these things. And we were talking about, uh, a few of us were at the hospital with Josh yesterday, and we were just talking about uh, Scripture 
And I was, I was saying that if I could be anywhere in the Bible, at any place, Luke 24, probably, I, I want to be on the road to Emmaus. Because I can see Jesus walking through these things. You see Isaiah 53. You see Psalm 118. You see Hosea 6. That's me. The one that, that says you will have to die for two days and, and rise again on the third so that you can live with the Lord. I'm going to do that for you. Or I, I did that for you. So amazing to see these things come together. So when John says that they didn't understand the, the Scripture, Scripture, the Word of God, they didn't understand the Old Testament, but they didn't understand Jesus who told them three times. Look at the book of Matthew. Now Matthew reiterates this. So they're, they're without excuse, starting in Matthew chapter 16. This will not be on your screens. You should be able to find Matthew. First book in the New Testament, three books back if you're in John. Matthew 16, look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. John is recognizing that Matthew is scripture too. This is God's word. When Jesus speaks, it is God's word. So the scriptures, Jesus himself speaking says, I will have to go through many things and I will die and on the third day raise again. He tells them a second time, chapter 17, verse 22. And they were gathering in Galilee. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. You'd think that they would remember this. And again in chapter 20, verse 17. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is earlier in the week. On their way to Jerusalem, he's telling them these things. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. How quickly they forget. How quickly we forget. It's not be, let us watch ourselves so that we don't forget these things. One more great detail here, back in John, verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And if you remember last week, anyone know John has someone new in his home? Remember? Jesus from the cross says, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He gave his mother over to the care of his, his brother through faith. So when they go home to their, their homes, Jesus' mother is going to hear the news that her son is no longer in the tomb because John has been entrusted to care for her. But Mary verse 11, stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. There's this transition here. The disciples are excited. They go back. But Mary, in her brokenhearted devotion, is still there, still staring at the empty tomb. And she's weeping. This is the same word that's used in chapter 11 when Jesus weeps over Lazarus's tomb. It's a, a, a visceral shaking. It's a continued weeping where your whole body is trembling because you are overcome with grief. And she stooped. These two action words, she's weeping and she's stooping. She looks down because typically these, these tombs were, were, were cut uh, into the ground. In her devotion, she's hoping for any sign of life, but yet she's too scared to go in. But something different happens when she looks than when the disciples look. Verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting there um, where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. A couple things we need to know about these, these angels. They're wearing white. 
The color white in Scripture is the color of, of purity. When Jesus comes back as the reigning Lord, he's going to be dressed in white. When the, the bride of Christ is brought up to heaven to feast with him, they are wearing white. It is the sign of, of purity, of blamelessness. And they are sitting where Jesus was once laid. This is the only time in Scripture where angels are described as seated. Every other time an angel comes, they are standing or they are coming to, for, for battle. When you are seated, that means there is nothing for you to do. These angels are relaxed. There is there's nothing more that they must do. They are seated. And there's one more amazing picture here. One is seated at the head and one is seated at the foot. This should make us think of the mercy seat. Think of the Ark of the Covenant that on the top it had two cherubim, one on each end facing each other. And what was the mercy seat? The mercy seat was the seat of atonement that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That if you touched without, um, without authorization, you would die. Once a year, they would take blood and they would sprinkle it on it. It was the sprinkling of blood on this seat that would cover the atonement of the sins for the people of Israel for the entire year. And it was guarded by two angels. So now you have two angels on a seat that once held Jesus' very blood, dressed in white. The wrath and justice of God satisfied on that seat, confirmed by two angels. And Mary Magdalene gets to see this. She sees the finished work of Christ and it being exemplified right in front of her. This is a display of the work of the Lord. She becomes the first witness of it. And I love the angel's temperament here because Mary's still weeping. She's visibly upset. And they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? The angels are not alarmed. There's no reason to be. And they're telling her, why are you weeping? He's risen just as he said. Don't you understand? But again, she goes back in her humanity. They have taken away my Lord. Now she's more desperate. At first she says they've taken away the Lord. Now we see her devotion in her heart here. They have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Her devotion is admirable. But she's missing the, the, the point. She's missing what's right in front of her. She's still thinking about what someone might have done. In verse 14, having said this, she turned around. This is another one of those things where endless speculation of why did she turn around at this, this, this moment. Here's my speculation because I think it's better. Um, but I, I'm, I'm picturing her you know, talking with the angels and the angels are looking at her. And the angels, kind of like when, when you're talking about someone and they walk up behind you and the angels are like, you know, look, that guy, you know, but, but behind you, like something motions to her to, to turn around. It's just my, my, my speculation. But um, she, she, she turns around and sees Jesus standing. Okay, great. All her questions are answered. But she did not know that it was Jesus. So we need to kind of park here for a, a moment. Why did she not know that it was Jesus? It, it, it's Jesus. The timing's perfect. He's coming back to the empty grave. He's, he's revealing himself to Mary Magdalene. Um, but what we, what we know is that in his resurrection, he still has a body. He's, next week, he's going to show it to, to, to Thomas. But it's not quite like his, his previous body. We would call this a glorified body. It is similar, um, yet it, it, it is different. Because he shows the, the, the scars to Thomas, but he also walks into, an, into a locked room. 
So there's something different about this. And here's one where um, so much speculation has happened and so much distortion has happened. Well, he wasn't truly resurrected. And let's, let's not go there. We don't know exactly what the substance of his glorified body was, but we know that it was visible. It looked human. She, we're going to see in a moment she thought he was the gardener. Um, and we, let's not focus on what we don't know. Let's focus on what we do know. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 tells us about this. And this is, this is beautiful, the, the spiritual significance of this all. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. So it talks about the spiritual nature of the believer. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, right now, speaking presently, our citizenship is in heaven. If your faith is in Christ, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. He's glorified. He has a glorified body so that he will glorify us and give us a glorified body. How does he do that? By the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. By his lordship. It is by his lordship that he is glorified and by his lordship he will glorify us. And so in this this new body, he determines when he reveals himself to someone. We're going to see that just a moment here. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus back in John 14, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? He's, he's, he's helping her out here. Not what are you seeking, not what are you doing here. Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, why does he think he's the gardener? I guess who else is going to be in the garden that early? Um, she says to him, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Still thinking someone took her. This is a third time. How many times do they have to be reminded in, in threes? This is the third time she assumes someone has taken him away. She's speaking to him. She still doesn't know. And the other thing we don't get here in the English, remember the word I said earlier, told you to hold on to, kurios, the word for Lord? Same word here used, sir. So she says Lord or kurios here. It can be used interchangeably, so we have to be careful about who she's speaking to. There's a bit of a play on words here. Because she says they've taken the Lord, and she's speaking to the Lord that she doesn't recognize and still calls him Lord, intending to call him Sir, assuming that he's the gardener. And verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. He has a conversation with her, doesn't recognize him, but he speaks her name, and she turns around. This is another detail that John gives us. So she was facing him, she talked to him, but she went right back to the grave because her focus was on where is Jesus. But as soon as she heard his voice say her name, Mary, she turns around. And I love this, that his glorified body was not immediately recognizable. But the moment he wants her to see him, she does. His voice is now recognizable. The word of God, the very voice of Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All he has to do is call her by name. This is a perfect example of the shepherd calling the sheep by name. The sheep recognizing his voice. All he has to say is, Mary. He reveals himself to his own in his own timing. And this is what we know for those of us who are in Christ, he calls his own by name. We could say that we know him. We could say a lot of facts about him. We could say that we're seeking him. 
But when he chooses to reveal himself to us, calls us by name, then we see him, then our eyes are open, and then we know him. So, with Mary Magdalene here, she's the first one at the tomb, she's the first one to see him, first one to hear his voice, first one to recognize him. And we see her devotion most likely because of how much she's been forgiven. And so, I just want to ask here, do you struggle with intimacy with the Lord? Do you struggle with devotion to the Lord? What drove Mary's devotion? She remembered the darkness and the depth of her sin. She remembered how much she's been forgiven. And for us, how often do we remember how much we've been forgiven? Does the reflection and remembrance of our sin drive us to be devoted to Christ? Would it drive us to get up early in the morning before dark so that before the, the light comes, so that we can be with him, so that we can pray and, and, and seek his face. Oh, that we would have the devotion of Mary, that she would so desperately want to be close to him. And I think this is why the detail in 17 is helpful, or brings us together. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Uh, Matthew helps us out with this detail, Matthew 28, 9. Talked about when the women see him. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came upon him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. So Mary hears his voice. Mary falls down to him, grabs his feet, and worships him as he should, as she should. And what's Jesus' first response? Don't cling to me. Why are you clinging? In the Greek, this is literally, don't touch me. Um, it's not as rough as it, as it, as it sounds. But there, there is a sense of don't, don't touch me and, and keep touching me. Why? Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. They weren't meant to cling to Jesus' earthly body. Like, this is just temporary. This is all meant to be temporary. He must ascend. Don't cling to me. It is more important that I ascend. You notice here that Jesus doesn't say, I'm risen. Here I am. Look at the resurrection. He tells her, don't get too comfortable. This is just, this is something temporary, and I must go. And he tells us earlier in in chapter 3 that the Son of Man must be lifted up. He must be ascended so that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Jesus told them, it's better that I go. So I go to be with the Father and I send you the Holy Spirit. Don't cling to my body. It's not about my my humanity. See me as Lord. Because if he does not go back to the Father, he cannot reign as king and he cannot intercede as, as priest. He is the reigning king and he is the interceding priest. Don't cling to this body. I must ascend. This is what Jesus leans in here. And he says something amazing that we may miss if we don't pick up on it. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go, but go to my brothers and say to them. What did Jesus call his disciples in chapter 15 and 16? He called them friends. Pre-resurrection, he calls them friends. Post-resurrection, he calls them brothers. Something happened with the resurrected Christ that they are now bonded to him. He calls them brothers. The adoption name, reminding them that you are brought into the family of God, that we are now brothers, that we are now united because I am resurrected. Christ relates to his brothers, calls them brothers. Uh, Look at Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those who he predestined, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those we called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. Our brother calls them brothers from predetermining to glorifying. He is through the entire process. But now, through the resurrection, he is our brother. And so, him calling them brothers is connected with his glorified body and their eventual glorification. See how this stuff kind of ties together? And he goes on. He is still preeminent, though. He says, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father. Notice he does not say our our father. God the father is his father. God the father is their father, but in a different sense. He is the son as a son relates to a father. They are adopted as sons to a heavenly father. They are not equal. They have the same father, but not in the same way. He is preeminent before them. My father first and your father. My father in nature, your father in adoption. He goes on to say the same thing here. To my God and your God. He does not say our God. They do not stand before God as equals. But in his humanity, Jesus was obedient to the God of heaven as a man, as he should be. And he calls them to be obedient to the God in heaven as they should be. My God and your God. As I have been obedient, you be obedient. And so Jesus tells us so much here within these three words, brother, father, and God. And then as a second time, he he tells them, I am ascending to my father. As the second time he says this, he, he does not emphasize his resurrection, as we said, but his ascension. So he did not rise from the grave to live on earth as a man. He rose from the grave to reign in heaven over earth as Lord. And that is what Jesus focuses on. Don't dwell on the here and now. I'm going to, to my rightful place at the right hand of my Father until he makes all of my enemies hit my footstool. And then closing here in verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. When you meet the risen Christ and he reveals himself to you, you have no choice but to say, I have seen the Lord. And for us, we should go and do likewise. So I want to close with a closing prayer from Ephesians chapter 1. You can turn there with me. As we get ready to prepare for for communion, I love this prayer by Paul because it connects all these things. It is an exhortation to the body, but it is also a theological statement about who Christ is. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to read 15 through the end of the chapter, through verse 23. As a pastor, this is the type of prayer I like to pray, uh, encouraging but also reinforcing great understandings and great theology. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. 
Want to know what lordship looks like? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen.